So last week we began our study in Genesis. We'll be spending a lot of the fall and probably in the new year talking about it. But we'll also have some breaks in between. And last week, if you weren't here, we did the very beginning of the Bible. In the beginning, God. And we looked how God is the sovereign one over all creation. And if, if you just sing that song and you still forget what that word sovereign means, here's what we mean by it. That the author has authority. That God, who is so powerful to speak everything that he made into existence, isn't kind of looking at the earth and all of us and saying, oh no, I can't control them. God is reigning. He has full control over everything that he's made, including us. That's what we affirm as Christians. And we looked in Genesis 1 and we saw that as humans, as, as uh, in Hebrew, literally the word Adam, humanity, mankind, that we are the peak of everything that God has made. God made Mount Rainier. He made the Grand Canyon. He made the oceans. He made everything that is beautiful. But of all the things that he made, the most impressive and beautiful and good thing he made was man. Because we were made in his image. And as image bearers, we were created and designed to reflect the goodness of God, to, to go out into the earth and to subdue it and to rule over it. And that's what we're talking about tonight. There's this phrase that a lot of Christians use. It's called the cultural mandate. And we didn't have a lot of time last week because there's so much to cover. So what I'm hoping to do tonight is I want to talk about what does it mean for God to tell Adam in the garden that you shall work and keep it, that you should go and have dominion and fill the earth, that whole be fruitful and multiply. And before we jump in, I want to just ask a few questions. And some of them are kind of low-hanging fruit, where I think the answer is pretty obvious, but I'll ask it nonetheless. How many of us, at times, have dreaded going to school? Yeah, a lot of hands go up, right? Or dreaded having to go to work? Have you ever dreaded waking up on a Saturday morning knowing that your mom or your dad's about to hand you a list of chores? And you just know that the next four hours... I get to do nothing I want. I just have to, and you kind of like, ah. My parents are like that a lot. (laughs) On a different note, are you someone who is constantly busy and in a rush and feels like they have hardly any time for themselves and that they, the dad in the back raises his hands, right? Um, And it's hard to to make time for all the things that you'd like to, but you just kind of overcommit to things. You stay up late. You wake up early. I think with both of those, at times we, we dread learning, right? This is so boring, we say. We dread having to work. We dread having to actually have a hard day's labor where we sweat and our body feels it. And some of us, too, we, we, we overcommit. We get far too busy. We become so exhausted. And typically for me, here's what I've learned. I, I'm a, a big plate person. I just take a lot on at the same time. But sometimes it's good to have boundaries. And I, and, I, and I say yes too much. And I go, 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 go. Right? Up early. Up late. Yes to everything. That eventually when I do kind of like have time to crash, I crash hard. And I'll spend two or three days and I'll, I'll just binge. I'm watching whatever I want. And I'll just kind of sit on the couch and I'll mope. And, and I just feel like, oh, I'm just like so exhausted, and my older brother, who's an iron worker, says, like, you don't even have a real job. What do you mean you're tired, right? Um, but regardless, even if our job isn't physical, we get 
kind of so tired that when we finally do have time, we just watch the screens that we're addicted to hours on end. Both of these extremes, one, hating the idea that we have to work hard, hating the idea of learning, maybe not hate, just sometimes maybe dread, and maybe the other extreme too of just kind of like always going, going, going and not taking time to recoup and refill, I think reflect two poor misconceptions we have about how God has made us. God has made us to reflect his glory, but he's given us two really important things right here in the first two chapters of Genesis. And they are my two points. They're just two points tonight. Here they are. I want to discuss, uh, frame our discussion around this cultural mandate and talk about these two things, work and rest. Work and rest. And hopefully at the end of it, we'll see how God has really designed us to be people who enjoy work because it reflects the glory of God and that we rest in the sovereign care that he gives to us. So let's look down at the first point. Work. Read with me in chapter 1 of Genesis, starting in verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. So like I mentioned earlier, the verse, especially in verse 20 and 29, a lot of people refer to that as what we call the cultural mandate. And a lot of times, as New Testament believers, people who who believe in God and we have the New Testament, we talk a lot about what we call the Great Commission. That we're in Matthew 28, Jesus is about to ascend to heaven and he tells his disciples, go and make disciples. And that is our great mission as followers of Jesus, that we would bring more people under the rule and reign of Christ. But where the Great Commission is the kind of mandate for New Testament believers, the cultural mandate in Genesis 1 was kind of the mission that Old Testament believers had. That God created all things and, and he now tells his image bearers that you go and take what I've made and begin to create more. Fill the earth. Be fruitful and multiply. And I think what's interesting is a lot of Christians don't spend any time thinking about this great mandate that God gives all of us to go and subdue. To harness the resources of the earth and to create something that is true and beautiful and full of goodness. And so here's what I have to do. I just want to draw out three implications of work that God gives us in the cultural mandates. Here's the first thing I want to say. Having to work is not a result of the fall. Having to work and go to a job and learn and be educated and plant 
and harvest and all those things is not because sin entered the world. There have been plenty of times in my life where I have dreaded having to go to work. And at times, for right reasons, it was super cold outside. I didn't feel good. It was a stressful situation. I didn't like my boss, right? There are are a million things of why we can dread school, why we can dread work, but but here's what I want to say. God created humans to work. Now, because of that, that means that even though we live in a broken world where sin is alive and well and makes work more miserable, that means as Christians, we should never be afraid to work. We should know that, that working is actually a way in which we reflect who God is. Why? Because we see a God who, what does he do? He creates and he forms and he fills and he plans, and he orders things. I don't know about you, but that sounds a lot like what? Like working. And here's the thing I would say, guys. Like when it it comes to going to school and having to learn, sadly in our society, we have taken education and we just have made it some huge performance real thing. That it's all about the testing. And it's all about school funding. But here's what I'd like to say. Educating yourself about how the world works, educating yourself about the sciences and literature and math is not primarily a task of how do I get a good career one day, but it's actually learning how to be someone who reflects the glory of God. Because when I am learning, all wisdom is God's wisdom, I am actually living out this mandate that God tells us that you should go and subdue the earth. Every single one of us, as an image bearer, you know what we're called to do in this mandate? We're called to build things. We're called to create things. We're we're, we're called to use our imaginations, our vision. We're we're called to to look into a forest of trees and say, man, what what can I do with these trees? Well, well, if we just cut down a few of these, and then we can reseed over there, so that next year we can start going over here. I can can get this wood. I can shave it down. And you know what? We can kind of get some carving tools, and we can make a little boat thing that floats in the river and we can actually go out there and we can fish and we can make canoes and then maybe we can we could travel over there and we can see more and see if there's there's more land to harvest stuff god has created us to work to take the earth to harness it to make it into something that is good and beautiful and that helps your common man that's what culture is that I would produce a good that is good for my common neighbor. So if I could summarize what I'm trying to say here. Here it is, right? Just a little sentence. Make God look great. Create. Make God look great. Create. Glorify your God. Love your neighbor by working. That's the first point. That work is a good thing. Praise God for it. If you got a job, if you get to be educated, that means that we have an opportunity to glorify God in it. Now, the second implication of what I mean by work is that we are called to be stewards. Look at verse 28. So God says in the middle of verse 28, be fruitful and multiply. So that is just, and, and fill the earth, right? That is just him saying, go make a bunch of babies, right? The more you create more humans, what are you doing? You're reflecting God who does what? 
who creates life. So even as image bearers, when we make families together, that in a way reflects God because he's the one who makes the first family in the garden with Adam and Eve. Right? But go on. Look at verse 29. He says, Behold, I have given you every plant and every plant that yields seed, and I've given you every beast, verse 30, on the earth and every bird of the heavens. God says, listen, of all the dominion of the earth, of all the things I've created, they are under your rule. They're under your reign. So my second implication is this, that we are called to be stewards. Stewardship. The idea that God has made humans the primary stewards of the cosmos. That we are to be the ones who care and take care of. Go ahead and do me a favor. Look down at chapter 2, starting in verse 10. Uh, Actually, we'll start in verse 15. Uh, Verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. To work it and keep it. So one, God has put him in the garden to work. We just talked about that. But he also put him in to take care of it, to keep it, to keep it going. And so here's what I'd say. A lot of Christians have discussion about this. Because here's the thing. Since sin has entered the world, we know that this, the earth groans, that the earth has earthquakes and tsunamis and, and tornadoes and, and there's disease and there's famine and there's death and, there, and there's so many things that sin has affected. So some people think, Christians, say, well, hey, listen, Christ is going to come back one day. The world is going to burn. So who really cares about the earth right now? Like, it's all going to burn. So just what can you really do? Well, some people on the other side of the extreme say, no, listen, we need to care about earth. Matter of fact, we need to adopt legislation and policies and regulations to help make sure that man actually takes a backseat to Mother Nature. And we actually see people, environmentalists, thinking that Mother Nature is more important than man. But that's not what we see in Scripture. All of creation rests underneath the dominion of man. So, so where's Christians we find this balance? And I'm, I'm condensing a big issue, really small for you, okay? Just trying to give you a little teaser of it, okay? How as Christians do we steward creation? Let me give you an illustration. When I was in Chicago, uh, my wife and I, we lived in a big house because the church provided it for us, and we had a dog, okay? And we're going back to California for Christmas break, for like eight days. And I'm like, okay, what am I going to do with our house? And um, we have our dog. And so I called up one of my students and I'm like, hey man, um, do you want to come house sit for me? And it's during Christmas. And I was like, I'll pay you this amount of money and, and I'm going to put a bunch of food in the fridge and the house, you can just invite anyone over you want. And, and it worked out really nicely. Like he invited even his like extended family and they celebrated Christmas in my house and they watched my dog. And it was great. It worked out perfect, right? Now, but imagine that if, if I had him do that, and I, and I bought all this food for him, and I, and I got it all organized, and he came to my house, and he never once ate any of the food I put in the fridge. He didn't take care of my dog at all, and the house was just a wreck, right? I get home. My dog is dead. There's all this wasted food in the fridge. There's books and papers ripped everywhere. My table is sawn in two because he had an idea. Like, think of how devastating that would be. What did I ask him to do? To be a steward of what I have. 
And he did a good job. Now, more than that, God has given us so much, and he's asked us to steward it. And how wasteful would it be if we don't take advantage of what he's given us? And how bad would it look if we don't even take care of the creation he made? So therefore, as Christians, we know that the pinnacle of God's creation is man. But that means we should work to make sure that the earth isn't a worse place, but a better place. Jesus says that, right? You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. We are to be people who we don't just waste our time watching TV and video games and melting our brains. But listen, guys, listen. Part of being a good steward is actually going out working and taking advantage of all the things we can learn and create and do in God's created order. That's what it means to be a good steward. Because here's the thing. If, if we just live in God's creation and we do nothing all day and we don't care about advancing any projects or serving our community or helping uh, our, our fellow neighbor... It's like we just sit in the house and let the food go to waste. And that's not what God wants. God says, I've given you these things. Take care of them. Keep it. So first implication, work. It's not because of the fall. Two, stewardship. Three, here it is. That God creates things simply for beauty. Do me a favor. Look at chapter two, starting in verse 10. So by the way, I haven't explained this well, but chapter two is zooming in on day six of creation. So uh, we have the whole scope of creation in Genesis one, but chapter two kind of laser focuses in on what happens on day six, the creation of man. Look at verse 10. It says, a river flowed out of Eden to the water, to water the garden, and there divided became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It was the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedillium and Anak stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. Also, do me a favor. Look down at verse 6. Let's grow up a little bit. And a mist was going from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man out of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in the Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the garden, out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So now think for a second, just imagine. This is day six of creation. God takes the dust of the earth and he forms man. And in man, he breathes his own life to give him life. And so Adam awakens. His heart begins to beat. And he looks around and he sees rivers. He's a luscious garden. He feels the sun. Right? I'm, I'm, I'm assuming God's talking to him. And he's, he's walking around this new creation and he sees the trees and he sees the fruit and he sees everything that God has made for him. And he begins to, to, to name the animals. And then Adam looks around and he says, um, hey, that tree doesn't have any fruit on it. 
What's up? Is that one broken or something? Why, why doesn't that tree have any fruit? Did you catch that? Look at verse, the middle of verse 9. God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. What does that mean? That God made things that are functional. One, that is good for the food. But here's the point. God makes things simply because they are beautiful. Not everything that God makes has some stated purpose, but because it simply was good to the sight. See, when we work, it's not just that we're trying to accomplish a job. When we work, we want to reflect the beauty of God. When I create a sermon, I can just write it down, type it out, and hand it to you. Be on your way. But I, I want to craft a sermon in such a way that, it, that it's beautiful and that it has emotions and it has ranges and it has lows and, and the way I use words. And just like any other career, any other job, what are we trying to do? We're trying to reflect the beauty of God. I guarantee you, when God made Mount Rainier, the volcano, maybe he has some geological purpose for it, for the Pacific Northwest. But maybe he just made it because it was beautiful. On a clear, sunny day, you're driving down I-5 and it pops at you. You're just like, wow, that's amazing. God made that. And so when we come to work, here's what we have to realize. That every single job there is reflects the beauty of God. That we don't just have to create things for functionality, right? I'm sure all your parents at some point have like thought about their kitchen or redesigned it. Right, you can get boring cabinets that look ugly. But what do we want to do? We match the colors. We get special kinds of woods. We, we get special kind of handles. And we make it match with the rest of the house. And you walk into a kitchen, you're like, not only is that a functional kitchen, you're like, that kitchen is a, it's gorgeous. It's amazing. And so as Christians, here's the thing, guys, listen. We value the fact that every single job points to some aspect of who God is. Jobs like city clerks, state jobs, public safeties, firefighters, police, the, the, the men who pick up your garbage reflect the providential work of God in that the, the providence of God is that he provides. All of those jobs in a way reflect that about God. Jobs like lawyers and judges and government agencies, prison wardens reflect the justice of God, doctors, nurses, social workers, counselors, reflect the compassion of God, accountants, the orderliness of God, teachers, scientists, journalists, scholars, share in the revelatory work of God in which God makes himself known. And on and on and on I can go about how every single job in a way reflects the beauty of God. So with that point summarized, here's what I want to say. Work is designed for us. It's a way in which we can reflect truth, beauty, and goodness about our uncreated creator. But at times, even a good thing like work can be made bad. Have you ever seen the effects, the bad fruit of a workaholic? Have you ever seen the, the viciousness of corporate ladders? Have you ever seen that at times work tears families apart? 
Because although God created man to work, he also created them to what? Rest. That's the second point. Look at down with me at chapter 1, verse 31, at the very end there. And God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very what? One person following? Verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. good. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he, what? Rested on the seventh day from all the work that he'd done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, let me explain something here. The idea that God rests is not being meant to mean that God was so tired, he was out of breath and winded, like, whoo! That was so hard. I'm going to sit back in my big throne here and I'm just going to put my feet up, grab me a Coke. Not like that at all. The idea is that God began to enjoy all that he had made. So the idea for God to rest means that he finally, he looks at it and what does he declare? He declares that it was very what? Good. good. And now that it was good, he's like, I'm going to sit and I'm going to enjoy the fruit of what I have made. Because, you know, in a few chapters later, we'll see that Adam and Eve made a really big mistake and that God had to, what? Does anyone know? He had to go and make clothes for them. So it's not to say that God just made creation, stood back, I'm done, you guys just go into history, do whatever. God actually, he continues to work in his creation. But the idea is that we would be able to enjoy the fruits of our labor. And so there's a few things I want to say about this point too, about rest. First is this. God has made you with limits. God has made you with limits. So the thing is about being made in the image of God is that God wants us in every single way to learn how to depend on him. How do we see this? Well, every night you need to go to sleep. You need food for energy. You need rest. You need relationships to be healthy. And God models this for us. And he is the God who started this out. As a matter of fact, in Exodus 20, the next book in the Bible that we're looking at, uh, Exodus 20 says this, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God, and you shall not do any work. For six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath and consecrated it. More than that, God would tell the Israelites that every seventh year, the Sabbath year, they were not allowed to plant anything. More than that, every 50 years, the year of Jubilee, they were to cancel all their debts and do no work at all. Although we have nowhere in Scripture seeing that if they actually follow that law, the idea is that God is commanding us to say, listen, there's a point which, yes, I made you to work, but here's the thing. I've also made you to enjoy. What's the point of making a lot of money if you can't enjoy it? What's the point of making a beautiful canoe if at times you can't just sit with your family and rest? So maybe I would say the idea that I don't work to live, I live to work, neither are true. We're created to work and to rest. We're created to be people who who are Limited people that every single day when you go to bed, you know what you're kind of implicitly saying to God? I depend on you. 
But more than that, Sabbath, the idea of taking rest, of taking a day, is a form of worship. Now think for a second. When you have a busy week and you're, you're going to school and, and you're maybe in sports or your part-time job, a lot of you are running start, maybe that adds some stress. I mean, you take a day and you step back from all the cares, the homework, the text message, you turn your phone off, you, you step back from the world. Here's what you can remind yourself of. That life is not about productivity. It is not about efficiency. It is not about how much I can accomplish and we take a day off from things, which is at times really hard for me to do. Here's what we remember. That God, not productivity, are the center of our lives. God models this for us. He thinks it's important that you guys don't run yourself into the ground. That at times that you learn to say no to things, that you, that you make sure that you have time to being Poured in. This is why, as God's people, Christians, we've always dedicated one day of the week to coming together, to hearing a word from God, uh, devoting ourselves to prayer, being encouraged by Christian community, and that day has typically been on the Lord's Day on Sunday. And we realize that we need to stop working and to rest. And so when you take that day off, when you, when, you, when you unplug for four hours, you say, I'm just going to do whatever it is that makes me restful. Do you know what you're saying? You're saying, God, I want to worship you for who you are. It is a form of worship when we take a step back from the responsibilities of life and we just simply rest and we enjoy what we have. One modern example of this, a company, Chick-fil-A, you know, in the fast food industry, cutthroat industry, they take every single Sunday. You cannot go to a Chick-fil-A on a Sunday because they practice this. Six days you shall work, from the Sabbath you shall rest. So here's the thing, really quick. Last thing I'd say about rest. Rest is for our good. Jesus even says in Mark 2, the Sabbath was not made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And I bring this point up because a lot of Christians debate, argue, many books have been written on the issue of what should Sabbath look like. Does it mean that one day a week we absolutely can do nothing and we have to say no to everything? Some people think so. But here's kind of what I think. I think we'll never become less busy. We'll never really finally be able to say, oh, I finally feel like I got everything checked off my to-do list. There will always be more things to do. There will will always be another issue, another problem, another thing at work, another thing at school, another thing that a friend's inviting me to. But here's what Christians have historically believed, that Jesus is our rest. That Jesus, bless his heart, Matthew 11 says, come to me and I will give you rest for my burden is light. Jesus to the woman at the well, right? Come to me and I will give you living water. So here's the thing. I want to tell you this. There is wisdom, there is beauty, and there is goodness in learning to make margins in your life, of finding times for whatever it is for you. I know people who, the way they rest, the way they practice Sabbath, is they like to, on Sunday afternoons, just kind of pedal in their garden. They kind of go pick a few weeds, they kind of, you know, get their hands dirty. And that to them is like relaxing. And they, and they love that. Some people like me, I love watching Tiger, win, Tiger Woods win golf tournaments like today. It's five years since he won. Anyone, anyone see that, by the way? Did anyone watch that? Thank you, Cameron. 
for helping the whole youth group there. But some people, do you know what? They, they do. They need that whole day off. They, they turn their phones off. They're just with their families. They don't have any expectations on them. They just get to be. And for them, that's the way they rest. And so here's the thing. I'm not going to give you some, this is the way you need to rest. For you, that, that, that's up to you. But here's what I would say. God has created you to rest. It is for your good. It's a way we worship God. It's a way we, we recognize that we're not just here just to be mindless little people who are just working away. We enjoy the fruit of our labor. So, with all of that said, work and rest, work and rest. If I ended the message now, I think it would be a little flat. I think it would be a little short. What does Jesus say about the issues of work and rest? If we left it at work, and to make sure that you work hard, and don't forget that work is a blessing. So when you wake up tomorrow, you better be grateful that you get to be educated. You better be grateful that you have that part-time job with the mean boss. I think it would still wake up at times feeling dread, that we'd want to escape it. But consider Jesus, who also in his great mandate, in his great commission, told us, that we also should go fill the earth. But this time we are to make disciples. So here's the thing. Jesus is the one person who actually fulfilled the cultural mandate that in all of his work, what would he do? Glorify God. Work is not just for work's sake. Work is the way in which we learn to glorify God in all things and all ways so that, guess what? We could fill the earth. So therefore, Jesus takes this cultural mandate and he says, go and make disciples. Therefore, wherever you are, whether you're an engineer, you're a doctor, you're a teacher, you're a mom, you're a nurse, whatever it is, you, you, sell, you sell things, make disciples, fill the earth. Take your work and make it meaningful. Jesus is the one who comes to us and he redefines work. He helps us to see that it's a way in which we glorify God. And so whether in word or deed, what are we to do? To glorify Christ. Consider Jesus' words when he says, anyone who comes to me, I will give them rest. My burden is light. Here's the good news, guys. Here's Christ in this message. Jesus, the true and better Adam, is redeeming the world by his work. And what is his work? His work is redemption. And through his partnership with his bride, the church, us, what is he doing? He is filling the earth of people who bring more and more people under the resting sovereign care of their creator. See, just like Adam and Eve were called to fill the earth by their work and their rest, Jesus is taking us, his church, to create more and more people who live under the rule and reign of God. And so therefore, we can be at school learning. We can be at our future jobs. We can be in our homes. And what can we do? Take those opportunities to live for the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and your kindness to us. And Father, I ask that you would help us
to live out the Great Commission with Jesus. Help us to make disciples. And Lord, I pray that when we think about issues of work, that we no longer see them as restraints, that we no longer see them as burdens, but we see them as opportunities to glorify you. Lord, we pray that we would be people who devote our lives to things that are true and excellent and beautiful and good. Help us to be people who care about our communities, who care about the earth. Help us, Father, to be people who are guided by Christ, who in all ways and in all things, we live under his sovereign rule. And Lord, we thank you that when we come to you, you will give us rest. Help us to live in that rest. Help us to die in that rest. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.